Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today, and I rather enjoyed the uh, Christmas play, didn't you all? Amen? That's right. So thank you to everyone who participated in that. Thank you, Natalie, for putting it together, and she came to me a couple of months ago, and she said, well, I think we ought to have a Christmas play, and I said, are you sure? And she said, yep. And I said, okay, make it so. And she did. And it was good. And it was good. So that's was great. It's good to see the kids involved. And I was, uh, was amazed at the array of animal life on the platform. We had all sorts of things. We had donkeys and uh, sheep and both white and black. So that's uh, uh, how that was designated. I'm not certain, but nonetheless, it was good. And uh, King Herod, we had a King Herod, and that's good. I was concerned about that. We were going to make Ben do that, but uh, we had a young fellow step up and fill that role, and everyone did a great job, and the donkey was pretty amazing. He moved across the platform here gracefully and didn't stop or buck, so that's a good thing. That's rare. So it was all very, very good, and I, I enjoyed that immensely, so looking forward to next year, Lord willing, and, and seeing what Natalie has in store for us <laughs> then. So all those in favor of Natalie doing this again next, next year, say aye. aye. Any opposed in such manner? There being none, Natalie, you have been delegated for Christmas 2024. So there you go. You can start planning today. <laughs> so, very good. Well, it's good to be here with you today, and it's good to gather together and celebrate as the redeemed of Christ. And this morning, we're going to continue to look at the Gospel of Luke. Trusting that you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And this morning, I wanted to take some time to look at Gabriel's announcement to Mary, which is very important. This is a a key component to the story, the Christmas story. Without it, we don't have it. And so it's important to focus on it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll read our text and then get into the Word. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. Thank you for the reminder that we've already received today of the significance of this Christmas story, um, the becoming of a Savior for a purpose and for a reason. Uh, the historical events surrounding it. Um, These are important reminders for us, young and old alike. And uh, we ask that the Holy Spirit would work in us today to remind us of these important truths. These are truths. This is not uh, a myth, uh, a fairy tale, or a fable. These are facts. They're hard facts, historical facts. And um, I pray, Lord, that those who are here today who do not know you, that you would open their hearts to hear these facts and that you would work in their lives that way and call them to yourself and call them to the Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of the Word. Um, and Thank you, Lord, for all the people who work so hard uh, to put these things together this morning. Thank you for their dedication to Christ and for their service to Him. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. This was just read as part of the play, so we'll, we'll read it again. 
Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now pay very close attention to the facts. As you recall, when we began looking at this passage in the beginning of chapter 1, Luke is very concerned about the facts. And he wants to make certain that the readers of this gospel will be reminded of these important historical places and events and people. Uh, they are real. And so Luke is emphasizing some very significant things that we'll get into. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, as I've noted, Luke is, of course, concerned with some important facts and events surrounding um, the birth of Jesus Christ. And of course, this passage communicates to us the important truth of the Christmas story, that is the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ, which without we have no Savior. Now, what's significant is how this passage and passages similar to it in the other Gospels have been co-opted to mean things which Luke never intended nor emphasizes. Bearing in mind, that at the beginning of chapter 1, we're reminded of the great links that to which Luke went to verify the facts related to the life of Jesus Christ and those surrounding him. We have an understanding regarding Elizabeth and Zacharias. We have an understanding regarding Mary and Joseph. We'll see, we have seen later in our readings Anna and Simeon, people who were associated with the beginning of the Christmas story and the pronouncement of Jesus Christ coming um, and the details related to their lives. But what we don't find here is any call on the part of Luke to worship Mary or to ascribe to her any special role or place other than to be the earthly mother of Jesus Christ. And nowhere do we find that Luke communicates to us um, that she was free from original sin as held to by the Roman Catholic Church, that she too was immaculately conceived. Nor do we find any communication on the part of Luke or otherwise that she was a perpetual, in, in a perpetual state of virginity. That's not true either, based upon things that we know from Scripture. Jesus had brothers and siblings, which we know from other gospel accounts. Um, nor do we have any communication on the part of Luke that she was taken body and soul into heavenly glory, which is called the Assumption. 
That is not communicated by Luke or any other gospel writer or in the content of Scripture. And most importantly, nowhere does Luke point to Mary, nor is it pointed to anywhere else in Scripture that she plays any role as our intercessor or the co-redemptrix for the redeemed. These are important facts as it relates to the content of what Luke is telling us. His focus is, of course, on Mary in this passage as it relates to her role as Jesus' earthly mother. But other than that, that is how she is identified. Certainly, there is favor to be bestowed upon her in that context. Of all the millions of women in the world, she is chosen by God. Now, it's significant, too, that in the context of what we understand about what is happening in this time and, and place, that there is a small remnant of faithful believers. We understand that from Luke chapter 1, verse 6, that Elizabeth and Zacharias were considered righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Understanding the requirements of faith, as, were the, as was the case with many Old Testament saints, understanding the model that we have in Abraham, Mary would have fallen within that category too as Elizabeth and Zacharias. There was a root based upon faith in something that is promised, and as a consequence, righteousness flowed from that. They were not working themselves into heaven. They were blessed and they were righteous in that context simply because they believed what had been promised in Scripture and were waiting for that to come to pass. And we see that, and I think Mary as well falls within that category. And so we have this account for us, given to us for a variety of reasons, and to remind us of who Jesus Christ is promised to be. And that's significant. As we read the passage here, we see that Luke emphasizes, of course, Mary's role. We see Gabriel, the angel, come and communicate, but importantly, we also receive information about Jesus Christ. And I think there are some important points that we should ponder this morning as we look at this passage. I think there are five things that we can take away from the passage this morning that I want you to, to note. First of all is we need to ponder the humble setting in which we find this event taking place. This is really quite amazing. It says in verse 26, now in the sixth month, this is six months into Elizabeth's, uh, I mean, Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth would be like Beloit, if you want to kind of put it in some type of context. Not much happens in Beloit. Not much has happened in Beloit. Not much is known about Beloit. And the same can be said of Nazareth as well. It was a small, insignificant town, historically speaking. There's little known about it. Approximately a population of four to 500 people at the crossroads. It's a town that's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Josephus makes no reference to it in his, his, his historical writings, nor is there any reference to it in any early Jewish literature. Nazareth, of all the places in the world, why Nazareth? It's interesting, if you turn to John chapter 1, look at this. This is kind of an interesting comment by somebody in Scripture. John chapter 1 
start with verse 45. John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was apparently a small town of ill repute. Philip said to him, come and see, <laughs> come and see. So indeed, we have this reference here. And again, this speaks to the idea of the humble setting. Now, now again, why is that important? It's important because of the, the, the backdrop against which the story of the birth of Jesus Christ takes place. Remember, we're reminded at the beginning of the story in verse 5 of chapter 1 that Herod is in power in this region. He's like the governor of Judea. And he's overseeing this region of the Roman Empire. But also in chapter 2 of Luke, we find this in verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And so you've got major cities. You've got Jerusalem. You've got Rome. You've got other locations of much greater significance and importance, politically speaking, historically speaking, geographically speaking, than this no-name town of Nazareth. Yet, this humble setting kind of speaks to the idea that that this, this, this issue, that that type of dynamic surrounds the birth of Jesus Christ. That God's focus is not on the pomp and the circumstance of Caesar, who himself would refer to himself as son of a God, God as divine, as savior of the whole world, and Lord. There was a cult in which he was worshipped, and it was in full swing at this point in time historically. And yet in this humble setting, we find this location identified to communicate that God often deals with the insignificant the obscure, and draws our attention to this humble setting. This is consistent later on with the birth of Christ in the context of how he came into the world and the location for that. I think we need to keep that in mind, that that the might and the power does not rest in those who think they have it, but it rests with God and how he directs the course of human events. And so he brings his son into the world in a place that's small and with people who are obscure. Who's Mary? I mean, we find here in verse um, uh, 27 that Gabriel is communicating to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Not a lot is known about her other than the fact that she apparently is part of a faithful remnant and is part of of a group of people who are still faithful to the true calling of God as it relates to faith and something unseen and yet to come. And they're waiting for that. And she is betrothed. She's engaged, not yet married, but engaged to Joseph. Importantly, his house is significant because we'll look at that because of the promises of Scripture. So God does not rest upon the the, the grand or the great, but rather he often works in small places with small people, which I think is encouraging in many ways. But what this also speaks to is the fact that Luke is emphasizing that this is um, not something that's mythological. These are real people in a real place in a real time. 
So as you are here today and you're listening to this, you are going to have to deal with the fact that there are facts. And, and what will you do with them? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I would submit to you that you're going to have to begin to wrestle with the idea that we have real people identified in a real place in a real time. This is not make-believe. Nazareth is a verifiable location. We can verify the existence of Joseph, uh, Joseph and Mary through a litany of other documents and external sources. We can confirm that, indeed, Joseph was in a house that was of the lineage of David. We can confirm all these things, and those are important things. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with the facts of Christmas? We find here, then, that Gabriel communicates something that's important. Of course, Mary is perplexed. We can see this in verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. It's interesting that um, um, while she is interacting with this, she is, she's pondering, thinking through what is taking place. Why would she be approached in such a manner? Why would an angel come to her? What is going on? The angel reminds her in verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, again, that's not based upon her own self-righteousness or any type of special thing that she has done. Again, I submit to you that she falls within that category of people that we find in verse 6 of chapter 1. Those who are being faithful to the Lord in the context of what he's called them to do, that they're trusting and looking forward to the Messiah. And in verse 31, the Gabriel communicates something that's quite important. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So what happens here is that Gabriel, importantly, is giving Mary what I would refer to as a kingdom perspective. Who is Jesus Christ? Why is he coming? What is his lineage? And why is that significant? Well, it's significant because of the tie-in to the Old Testament. We understand that this coming child is connected to the promise at the heart of what we would refer to as the Davidic covenant, that which was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where David is told that is his house, his line shall endure forever. Also in Psalm 90, 89, 36, his throne shall last as long as the sun before me. Micah 4, 7 and Daniel 7, 14 also speak of the unending nature of Christ's reign and rule. So Gabriel repeats God's promise to Mary, David's descendants upon David's throne ruling over Jacob's people. We find that as he goes on. Verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, this would have resonated with Mary. As we'll find out later in verse 46 in the Magnificat, she's quite a biblical scholar. She has a great understanding of God's word. And so these words begin to resonate with her in the context of the promised Messiah, the one who would come and save his people from their sins. 
Interestingly enough, Mary is likely between the ages of 13 and 18 at this point in her life. That would have been the norm in this period of time of, of history. Young ladies were often married between that age. They were betrothed. Their family was involved. There was a giving in marriage that way by the family. And so Mary found herself in that context and in that place. And what we find here is that as we think about what the angel is saying, he's reaching back into the Old Testament, and he's, he's going back to a very old promise. He's going back to something that's been promised hundreds of years before. Likely forgotten by many, not given much credence by some. Yet for those who are the true remnant, truly associated with God, these words would have resonated, and I believe that they did, with Mary. Now consider what is communicated about Jesus Christ, and I want you to think about this. And I think it's really the thrust of my message this morning in the context of what Mary is told about Jesus. And behold, it says in verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now that's important. The name Jesus means what? Savior. Savior. And a Savior plays an important role. He, he saves people from something, correct? I mean, you would agree with me about that. And so he is a Savior. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, if you will, and be reminded of what we're told there, what Joseph was told. We have a, a different version here to give us additional depth into what, this, what is taking place at approximately the same time. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus because he's going to do something. This is a statement of fact. For he will save his people from their sins. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about the idea that the message of Christmas um, is somewhat stinging. It has a, has a punch to it. We talk about a Savior who has come, one who has been born, but he's been born to do something, and it speaks to a desperate need, does it not? We need a Savior. Why? Because we are sinners. And without this Savior, we will be left to ourselves and will spend all of eternity separated from God in the context of anything that is loving or kind or gracious but under the full-orbed aspect of his justice, which incorporates his wrath. Are you a sinner? Are you? Are you a sinner? Well, if you are, then what do you need? A Savior. So what I'm doing this morning is I'm talking to you about the facts related to the birth of the one who has been identified as that Savior. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to deal with those facts? Now, some of you here know Jesus Christ, and you revel in the facts. You rejoice in the facts. 
you do exactly what those who are associated with this story who are anticipating the Savior, they rejoice, they ponder, they, they contemplate, and they revel in the wonder of God's working out His prophetic promises in, the, in their midst in real time. Mary ponders these things, and, and it's a source of rejoicing, as we will later see in verse 46 when she makes these wonderful statements about Jesus Christ. So what will you do with it? How will you deal with the facts of Jesus Christ's birth? The redeemed rejoice. The unregenerate do what? Will you hear the word of the Lord today? Will you hear what Luke is telling you? As I reminded you a couple of weeks ago, or last Sunday perhaps, that the, the fact of the matter is that Luke was concerned about the facts, and he went out and spoke to multiple witnesses to confirm everything that's contained. This isn't just hearsay. This isn't Luke's just rambling. He went out and verified the information that is contained within his gospel. That's significant. And so these facts matter. And so we understand his name to be Jesus. That is, he's going to save his people from their sins. That he is the fulfillment of that which was promised to David. That is, that there would be someone who would come in the future that would perpetuate the rule and reign in the context of a kingdom that is governed by Christ, which is significant for us. So Luke gives us this kingdom perspective, this old promise being fulfilled, the one who is coming is indeed the Messiah. Let's continue looking at these verses here, verse 32, what it says. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Something else that we can go back to in the Old Testament and see that's been confirmed. It's now been fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. In verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So what this tells me then, too, is that, that, there are, that there are two realms in which I'm going to exist. I'm going to either exist within the realm of Christ and his kingdom or outside of it. There's, there's no no man's land. As I have said so many times, and I'll keep saying it because I think it bears repeating, there are no Swiss people in the story. There are no neutrals. There's no neutral kingdom here. There's no third kingdom there's no place where you can stay in the middle in between the two kingdoms and, and hold yourself out to be, well, I'm, I'm, I'm such a person that, I, that I'm, I don't have to make a commitment in either way. Well, the fact of the matter is that you're already in one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and you must be born again to get into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of which this angel Gabriel is speaking. Which kingdom are you in today? The communication by the angel contains for us a blessed promise and it gives us a perspective that is biblical about the age in which we live and the people who inhabit these ages. And so the old promise is fulfilled and Mary understands that. She contemplates that. Now, of course, 
Mary asks an important question. Mary says to the angel in verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? Of course, we have contrasted Zacharias's response, which resulted in him being made mute when the angel Gabriel told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a son. Mary's response is not like his. His was one of doubt. Hers is one of just simple perplexity. A biology question in many ways. She's not doubting. It's just simply, how does this all work? And of course, the angel, Gabriel, in a way, delicately explains it in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason... That's so important. Because of that fact, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Now, without that fact, we don't have a Savior. Without that fact, we have no hope. Without that fact, there's no point to do anything. If that's not true, you're wasting your time here this morning. If that's not true then we are the greatest fools on the face of the planet. And you must accept as true that fact that the Holy Spirit came over Mary and in some mysterious way that we don't understand and not, we're not called to understand everything. We don't have the mind of God. But we understand then that Mary's son, Jesus, would be different in that context and as a consequence be able to be a savior. A savior. Not tainted by Adam in that way. He is the second Adam, but he is not of the direct lineage then of Adam, is he? Because of this. Not fallen, not depraved, not a corrupt nature, but deity. The God-man. And praise God for that. And so she would ponder these things, of course. We look at verse 36. To remind her of the wonder of what God can do, the angel communicates to Mary what's going on with Elizabeth. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And so, so Mary is given an example of how God is working. God is, is moving. The Lord is at work. Even Elizabeth, who is older, it says here, in her old age and barren, is now pregnant six months so. How is that possible? Well, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Here we find that um, this verse reflects back on uh, what we find in Genesis 18.14, which is in reference to um, the story related to Abraham and Sarah, is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? Is anything too impossible for him to perform? And Sarah, who conceived Isaac, not because she was able, but because Yahweh had promised the same would be true for Mary. And so Gabriel gives 
Mary a real-time demonstration of God's power to do the seemingly impossible because she's pondering in her mind, how is this possible? Yeah, I'm engaged, but nothing's happened between me and Joseph. There's, how does this all work? And Gabriel is assuring her, as God has been faithful in the past, look at this, look how, how Luke keeps taking us back to God's demonstration of his purpose and his plan and his ability to do what seemingly is impossible as a reminder that as I have stated, so it shall be. You are going to have a son and you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. That's a promise. And don't forget about Sarah. And now you can think about Elizabeth who is six months pregnant when that seemed to be impossible, and so too shall you have a child, capital C. What a wonderful thing to contemplate. All of these things being delivered to her is significant, and for us as well. And what we want to do is to, is to examine the text and examine the passage and to, and to worship in the context of what is defined as what is happening. So we see then this model response on the part of Mary. She's reminded that nothing will be impossible with God. And so what does she say? Well, I'm not doing this. What? Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because I don't think that we often appreciate this side of the story. What what does she do? She says this, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Why say that? In that moment of all the things to say, why would she say that? What is she doing? She's saying this, Not my will be done, but your will be done. A bond slave, in the context of which this language is used, is like the lowest of the low. They have no ability to do anything other than what they're directed and what they're told. And Mary is saying in response to this information that's been given to her by Gabriel that I will do as the Lord has called me to do. I'm willing to do this. I'm going to count the cost because the cost would have been great for her. Think about this for a minute. She's now going to be pregnant, but she's not yet married. That's a problem back then. I mean, even today, not so much so anymore, but even today, there is a stigma culturally that is associated with that. Back then, even more so. She would have been ostracized by her family. She would have been mocked publicly. She would have been ridiculed. She would have been accused of being all sorts of things. And Joseph, at the same time, would have been subject to even greater ridicule. Are you going to get rid of her? Are you going to to, to abandon her? What are you going to do with her? But Mary says, I'm prepared to take up my cross. I'm prepared to do what the Lord is directing me to do because I know that he will be faithful to his promises. That's what. And that's significant. Of all the things to say, I find this statement 
to be quite remarkable. Now keep in mind too that, again, as I've noted, Luke went to great lengths to verify what took place, what was said, what happened. We know from the beginning that he went and spoke to multiple witnesses. And we have then this account given to us to consider and to also ponder. Mary did a lot of pondering. We find that in Scripture. I like that about Mary. To ponder means to meditate, to contemplate, to to filter through as she would have been doing through what she knew about God's Word, which would have been the Old Testament at that point. And so she thinks about it. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Wow. That's significant. Counting the cost. Understanding and knowing that I am going to trust the Lord. I'm going to wait upon him because I know that he is faithful and true. That's hard to do. Now think about it too, at that point in time in history, she doesn't have much of anything. A poor country girl in a no-name town against the backdrop of what many would consider to be one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. A king, a Caesar, who is being worshipped as a god and has proclaimed himself to be divine. Herod, who is a tyrant and a horrible person. We talked about that last Sunday. And against this backdrop, in this small town, with this young girl, the angel comes and says, God has found favor with you. Hear me. This is who your son is going to be. And she says, I will do it. I'm the bond slave of the Lord. I belong to him. I will do his will. It's beautiful. It's quite striking. Of all the things that could be said, this is what is stated. Now, again, Mary ponders these things. She's jeopardizing all these things, perhaps her social status or even her relationship with Joseph. She doesn't know how Joseph's going to respond to this. For all she knew, she was going to be deserted and despised. That would be the normal reaction. And she calls herself the slave girl of the Lord. These facts are important for us. These facts are given to us to ponder and to consider. And so I'm going to ask you again this morning, what are you going to do with the facts. What will you do with this aspect of the Christmas story? Considering again what the angel said of Jesus, you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to be a savior. People need a savior because they're sinners. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You are corrupted from head to toe, according to Romans 3. You need a Savior because you're a sinner. What are you going to do with the facts of this story? 
It's often been said that you must approach Christ from three standpoints. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. A liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Where do you stand? It's interesting, too, what wasn't provided to us. We need a Savior, of course, and that's important, but God did not send an economist because our deepest need isn't about poverty, is it? Consider, too, what Mary would have, life would have been like. It, not very good in the context of what we would have understood life, a good life to be. Life was difficult. Life was hard back then. Insanely so for people like Mary. So he doesn't send an economist. He doesn't send a philosopher because our trouble is not incoherence and debate about things unknown. He doesn't send a psychologist, for our problem is not maladjustment. He doesn't send an entertainer, for our problem is not boredom. He doesn't send an administrator, for we are not disorganized. Nor does he send a religious leader, because we are not typically irreligious. Rather, he sends a Savior, Messiah, Lord. That's the proclamation of Christmas. That's the significance of what we contemplate. Now, you're here today, and now you've got information. You've got facts, and they've been told to you by little kids. You've sung about them, and now you've heard them from the Word of God. What are you going to do with them? There are those of you here today who perhaps this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. God, in his merciful providence, has allowed you to be here today. What will you do with that fact? You walked in the doors of this church. What did you think was going to happen? What did you think you were going to hear about? Little kids have told you about Jesus. We've read the story from the Bible. I've talked to you about it. I would call you to do this. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. Now, if you don't do that, and we're not going to have an altar call, you can do it right where you're sitting. Like blind Bartimaeus on the side of the street, when Jesus is walking by, he says to him, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. You can do the very same thing. Will you do it today? Do it while it's day, because the night is coming when no man will be able to call upon the name of the Lord. You've heard the facts. You know the story. Will you turn to Christ today? I call you. I beg with you. I'm pleading with you. Will you do it? Because you may slip into eternity tomorrow. People die every day unexpectedly. You think you've got the world by its tail, and you don't. 
God in his mercy is allowing you to hear the true message of Christmas today. What are you going to do with it? Call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. It's so simple. It's so easy. Will you do it? Now, you may say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to tell you what. Hell is full of good people. Hell is full of people who thought they were really good people. And it didn't keep them out. Jesus came to save sinners, and you're a sinner, and you need a Savior. Turn to Christ. Call upon His name. Call upon His name. May today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of who you are. Thank you for the passages that drive us into our desperate need for a Savior. Thank you for the passages that remind us that power and glory do not rest with what we perceive to be the mighty, but is found in the humble and the obscure. You work in mysterious ways, as you did with Mary. And still on us this morning, the wonders of this story. And for those who are here who do not know you, I pray, dear God, that you would open their hearts and their minds. Give them life. Call them to yourself. Save them, please, I pray, dear God. May this be a great day of salvation. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ as, your, as Savior, we rejoice and praise you for the great work of salvation that you have wrought in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the greatest gift of all. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you and Merry Christmas.